0: Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 25. Therefore, this is Jesus speaking, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is God's word. Let me pray before we look at it together. Right, Father, we're grateful that you uh, promised to meet us when we open up your word. And we would now ask for you to do so. Would your spirit attend uh, your word? And as we just sang, would we find our savior there? And so would you please open up our eyes, unclog our ears, and uh, soften our hearts so that we would be able to see, behold, taste, experience, and relish in uh, that which is really beautiful and that which is really true. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, because I am uh, a campus minister here at App, I am a member of what is called uh, the ASLA. Appalachian Spiritual Life Association, which is basically all the different campus ministry leaders and campus ministers kind of have this little club where we get together uh, once a week to hang out with each other, to talk about you, to uh, talk about issues that are going on on the campus, and once a year, what we do is we go over to the counseling center for our monthly meeting and we meet with like the panel of counselors there which is it's kind of funny to me it's kind of like a setup for a sitcom because you have one half of the room that are all these kind of religious spiritual ministry types and then you have the other half of the room which is like the the secular academic counseling types and we come together to talk about issues that students are dealing with and how we can partner together and think about things and anyway it's great but this past spring Uh, I guess a couple of months ago, we asked the panel of counselors, what is the number one issue that students come in to receive counseling for? Of all the reasons why students come in through your doors, what's the most common reoccurring thing? And without hesitation, they all said anxiety. Which really isn't surprising, because Anxiety is the number one issue in our culture right now. Uh, in 2012, last year, the national uh, what is it called? The National Institute of Mental Health showed that anxiety disorders affect 18% of the adult population in our country. 18% of our country's population is roughly 40 million people. Now, to put that into a little bit of perspective, if you take the entire population of North Carolina, every human being living in the state, multiply it by four, you're still not at 40 million people yet. So it just shows you how, you know, enormous this issue is, culturally speaking. And just to kind of reinforce that, in 2010, uh, the anti-anxiety drug Xanax, was the number one top selling prescription uh, drug. I'm sure it's the same for the past three years as well, I just don't know. So we know anxiety well. It doesn't surprise me that anxiety is the number one issue on this campus because it's the number one issue uh, in our culture. And I know that you struggle with this. I know some of you personally that I've talked with that struggle with this and really feel crippled and paralyzed by uh, anxiety. And really, the reality is, for all of the advancements in our country, technologically speaking, scientifically speaking, medicinally speaking, we still live largely in an age of anxiety, where we're anxious about our health, we're anxious about our relationships, we're anxious about the future, we're anxious about our family, we're anxious about what we're going to do with our life, we're anxious about the state of our country, we're anxious about international issues. So... To this enormous issue, Jesus speaks. And three times in this passage, he says, Do not be anxious. Verse 25, 31, 34. Is that all Jesus has to say, though? (laughs) You know, to this enormous kind of pandemic issue, just stop it. Like, don't do that. Well, no, he has a lot more to say. And so what I want to do is I want to look at this passage, which he really addresses uh, two things. What anxiety really is, and then how we can go about dealing with it. So those are the two macro headings we're going to look at. What anxiety really is, and then how we go about dealing with it. So first, what is anxiety? And, and what he does here, he does not give you an exhaustive definition of what anxiety is, but he gives you kind of what, I want, what I say are three components of what anxiety, you know, what anxiety really is at its root. Here's the first component. The first component to anxiety is that it is rooted in fear. It's a fear thing. Here's where I get this from. Verse 25, Jesus says, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink. Verse 34, Jesus says, do not be anxious about tomorrow. So he's basically saying, do not be anxious about your life, and do not, and do not be anxious about your future. Now, why would your life and your future produce anxiety in you? Because if you you think about it, your life and your future are two things you cannot control. You have no control over those two things. And so what he's doing is he's tapping into the root of what anxiety really is. Anxiety is fear in the face of uncertainty. Anxiety is fear in the face of uncertainty. Now, fear in and of itself is not a bad thing. Fear can actually be really healthy and helpful, especially when you're when it's in the face of certainty. So, for example, uh, as you know, many of us in the RUF community are playing the game Assassins, which the way that this has worked is you sign up. Many of y'all have signed up. And when you sign up, you're then given... A name of a target, another student that you have to go kill. And kill is in quotation marks. And you kill them by hitting them with a spoon, and when that person's killed, they're out of the game. And, but of course, when you sign up, and then you go kill somebody, immediately when you sign up, somebody has you as their target. So it's a kill or be killed kind of game that we're playing here in RUF land. But I, I too, had signed up for this game. And a couple of weeks ago, after RUF, I'm leaving the building in a masked Figure begins running at me, holding two spoons. Now I began to experience fear in the face of certainty. Here is a definite threat that is coming towards me, trying to kill me. And actually, fear worked in my favor in that moment because uh, my instincts sharpened, my my senses were heightened. You know, time began to slow down. And I was able to react and evade the ninja that was uh, trying to get me. So fear in the face of certainty was rather helpful. But if you do not know who your killer is, as many of you know, you are left with this crippling... Paralyzing, generalized paranoia because you never, you don't know who's coming, you don't know who's coming for you, you don't know if the person you're talking with is setting you up to distract you so that somebody can come behind you and get you. And so, for the first few weeks of this game, I hated uh, assassins for the same reasons that you did because that is fear in the face of uncertainty. You don't know where the attacker is coming from, and that's kind of how anxiety works. It's not this healthy fear that actually enables you to react in threatening, definite situations. It's this paralyzing fear on hyperdrive in the face of uncertainty. It's generalized, it's not attached to anything. So, for some of you, uh, you, str- you have social anxiety. You struggle with social anxiety, and you may feel it more than anything in the room that you're sitting in right now. This is actually why I know some people don't come to RUF anymore because it's, it's too big, it's overwhelming. But what happens when people who, who, who struggle with social anxiety come into this room or come into a room like this is that your heart starts racing, your hands get sweaty, and you kind of feel that general level of discomfort. And those are all kind of signs of some level of fear, But the fear is not attached to anything. There's no threat in front of you. It's just this this hyper kind of fear on steroids in the face of uncertainty. That's the first component that that I want you to see about anxiety is is that it's, it's rooted in fear. Here's the second one. The second component is that it is future oriented. It's future oriented. Notice everything in this passage Jesus puts in the future tense. Don't worry about what you shall eat or what you will eat, what you will wear, what you will drink. Verse 34, don't worry about tomorrow. Anxiety is primarily focused on the future. The the time zone, as one author put it, the time zone where anxiety likes to live is in the future tense. So what you do is you you take your imagination and you fast forward into the future and you conjure up all the what-if scenarios about what would happen. What if I do not do well on this test? What if I do not get done everything that I need to get done right now? What if I do not get married? What if I do not get that internship? That's what anxiety is, is this future-oriented sort of fear, but it's in this nebulous sort of future. For my family, my house is not... We do not have a flat yard. I don't know if anyone in Boone has a flat yard, but we especially do not have a flat yard. We live kind of on a slope of a mountain. And so really, the only flat place for our kids to play is on our back porch. Thankfully, we have this nice back porch uh, that's fairly wide, so our kids can run around and play in it. Or I guess Zoe Kate, our oldest, is the only one that can really run around at this point. But uh, it has these wooden this kind of this wooden fence around it because it is on the second story, really, and so if that fence was not there, the fall down to the ground is this 15 to 20 foot drop beneath you. And when our daughter Zoe Kate first started walking and we first started playing out there, I had vivid Anxiety attacks about her falling through those wooden slats because it's, it's only nailed in by just a little nail. So when she would you know run towards it and bump up against it, all I could picture was that wood giving and her falling off. I would have nightmares about it. I would vividly visually imagine her falling off and falling to her death. That's what anxiety does is it takes you into the future where you vividly visualize the details, but it's only bad. It's only bad things that you visualize. So you visualize things like showing up to class, um, unprepared for a test that was just announced when you get there. You visualize the details of your own funeral. You, You visualize a life by yourself, single and lonely. That's what anxiety does is it looks into the future and it pictures in graphic detail the worst outcome. This is why, by the way, uh, our culture is obsessed with techniques that will guarantee you results. You know, there is an enormous market for books or for magazines or magazine articles that have a title something like this: "The Three Steps to Financial Security." the seven steps to an amazing marriage. If you want to make big money, just write something with that as the title because our culture is obsessed with knowing, okay, if I can just do X, Y, and Z and that will guarantee the outcome, that will guarantee the future, then I'm all in. Christians have a a different way of doing it. We're obsessed with it too, but what we're obsessed with, the way that we kind of spiritualize it and baptize it is to... Uh, get obsessive about discovering God's will. And we don't do it. Don't know what's happening, how y'all, out there. But uh, <laughs> the way that we do it is we get, um, we get hyper weird and obsessed about trying to figure out what does God want for our life. And usually, if we're honest, it's not because we love God and want to serve him. It's because we want to know the future. I want to know what God wants for my life, what I'm going to do, who I'm going to live with, where I'm going to live, what I'm going to do as my career. We want God to tell us those things because we feel so incredibly anxious about the future. Which really kind of leads into the third component. You know, the first, first component, it's rooted into fear. It's future-oriented. Here's the third component, is that it it's faithless. And, and I don't mean that in an insulting, pejorative sense, in the sense of if you have anxiety, you don't have any faith. I'm just using that in the same way that Jesus does, in the sense that it's a diagnostic test. Look at verse uh, 30. Jesus is saying that anxiety is largely a symptom of a lack of faith in God, a lack of trust in God. If you truly trusted God, then you wouldn't worry. You wouldn't need to worry. So I'll just use me as an example. Uh, I profess to believe that God is in control of all things. That God is sovereign over every molecule in the universe. I claim to believe that. And, on the the, the other hand, I, I claim to believe that God is good. At his core, at his essence, he is good. So my professed theology is that God is sovereign and that he is good. But, if I really believed that, Why do I sometimes wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning worrying about things? Why do I really get stressed out about stuff? You know, my behavior, the fact that I worry, the fact that I'm anxious, the fact that I freak out, the fact that I get stressed out, shows I don't really believe that. I don't really trust God with my life. Here's what one author put it, and this is uh, very insightful. He says this, If I imagine the worst... I will be more prepared for it. Therefore, worry is looking for control. I think that's incredibly insightful. Worry, anxiety, is about looking for control. You don't want to trust God with your life, so, you, so out of self-protective interests, you seize control of your life. Which, of course, only reminds me of Bruce Almighty. You remember that uh, terrible... Movie with Jim Carrey. I don't know when it came out, how, ten years ago or whatever. Uh, basic premise of the movie is this: uh, God, who's Morgan Freeman, comes to <laughs> comes to Bruce, the Jim Carrey character, and basically kind of gives him, all of his God powers. He says, I want you to kind of be God for the day or you know, whatever. Here's, here's all of my God abilities. Here's all my God responsibilities. You be God now. I'm going to go on vacation or something. And at first, the Jim Carrey character, you know, Bruce, loves it. He's, he's using all of his powers and all of his uh, sovereignty to make life more enjoyable, to make it more exciting, to make it more entertaining. But of course, as the movie goes on, the responsibilities pile up. He can't like respond to all of the prayer requests like they keep coming in. He gets overwhelmed with all the responsibilities. And at the end of the movie, he, he's, he does not like playing God. It's too much to handle. It's too overwhelming. And so he doesn't like it. And so he kind of throws in the towel. And that's kind of he learns the big lesson at the end of the movie. Don't try to be God, right? OK. But this, the reason I bring that up is because if you listen to your anxiety, if you listen to it, it's telling you something. And what it's telling you is, I want to be God. I want to be in control. I don't really want to trust God with my life. I want to assume control. But of course, you were not made to control your life. You were not made to assume that responsibility. So as soon as you assume control of your life, you get stressed out and you get ulcers, and the stress eats your stomach lining, and you're agitated, and you need medication, and you can't sleep, and you're stressed out, and that's what anxiety does to you because it's you putting yourself in the position of God, which is a role you're never meant to be in. So you put all that together, and that's sort of Jesus' composite of what anxiety is. Of course, that's not an exhaustive list, but that's just a start to begin thinking about what it is. It's rooted in fear, It's future-oriented, and at its baseline issue is that it it ultimately doesn't trust God. It lacks faith. So if that is what anxiety is, then how do we deal with it? Because everybody in this room deals with it. Everybody in this room wrestles with it. So how do we begin to fight back with it? Well, let's look at it. But before we look at um, what Jesus has to say about it, two quick thoughts kind of off the record. First thought is, I don't think that the Bible is opposed to medication. The Bible clearly recognizes you are both soul and body. And so sometimes your body is chemically messed up and needs help. and needs medication. But medica- medication, medicine, is never the answer. It, it, for some people, for some of you even, it's part of the answer where it enables you to begin then dealing with the deeper spiritual issues that are always underneath it. But medicine in and of itself is not bad. Second thought before we look at Jesus. Uh, I don't typically do this, but I want to recommend a book to you. Uh, This is the book. It's called Running Scared by Edward Welch. And this is a book where he, he devotes way more time and gives uh, this issue a whole lot more thorough treatment than I can do right here. So if you're someone that struggles with fear and worry and anxiety and control, then you need to read this book, which is all of you, by the way. So let's look at what Jesus, uh, how he instructs us on how we are to go about dealing with this. Um, You know how in Google Maps you can zoom in so close that you can put the little guy on the street, and he can like look at the actual picture of the house, which is really creepy, by the way. That you can that we're able to do that, and not like look into the windows of the houses. We'll, we'll get there soon, but um, um, but that's what anxiety does. Anxiety is this intense z- zoomed in focus where you're only zoomed in and focused on your life. And your life becomes incredibly cramped and small and claustrophobic as a result because that's all you can think about is just you. That's that's what anxiety does is it zooms in. But what Jesus is going to do is he's going to encourage us. The way that we go about dealing with our anxiety is we have to zoom way out, way out, that we have to look at the entirety of life, as it were. Here's where I get this. Verse 25. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Jesus is saying there are some things out there that are more important than you getting your needs met. There are things in life that matter more than just you having all of your individual needs needs met. So then he encourages us a step further. Verse twenty six. He twenty six. <laughs> oh, we're all mature, aren't we? Um, Verse 26, he tells us to look at something. Look at 26. He wants uh, you to focus your mind and your attention on something. Verse 26, look at the birds. That's what he tells you to look at that's your takeaway from tonight's talk about anxiety is look at birds we can close in prayer now. Um, no, why does he tell us to look at birds well because, you know, go on here's what he says, he says um, well we're not good at it." verse 26 they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns and yet your heavenly father feeds them, here's what he's saying look at the birds of the air they don't ask for help And yet God takes care of them. He provides for their needs. And then the way that he ends that verse is to say, and you're more important than them. You're more valuable than birds. And if God takes care of them, then what does that say he's going to do for you? Here's his point. His point is this. Your needs are on God's radar. And they actually matter to him. Even though he says life is more important than your needs, at the same time he's willing to say your needs, your issues really do matter. God is the great provider. That's, the, that's what he's getting at with this first example. But he gives you this other example in verse 28. He says, consider the lilies of the field. Now, instead of, God say, instead of Jesus saying God is not only your provider, he is the great designer. He's saying look at the flowers. God could have made all the flowers brown." He could have made you with no taste buds. He could have made a world that is completely drab and functional and utilitarian, but he didn't. He is saying, open your eyes and look. Look at the myriad of colors and sights and smells and sounds. God is this magnificent artist, extravagant in his creativity. And that tells you that he's unbelievably detail-oriented. And he cares about all the different details of this world and of your life. So, what he, so here's what Jesus is doing. He's telling you to zoom out, to look at all of life, and therefore to get a bigger grasp of who God is. He's your father. He's your provider. He's your designer. He's the great artist. And when you begin to get a, a bigger grasp of who God is, that, that in turn affects your anxiety. Here's how. To illustrate this, um, I am... I have historically been terrified of flying. This is because probably about eight or nine years ago when I was dating my now wife, Catherine, we dated long distance. And at one point I was flying to Atlanta where she lived at the time. And we were um, going through a storm. And it was incredibly turbulent. Uh, So much so where the plane was dropping in the air. You, you know you know that feeling when you jump off a waterfall or when you know the roller coaster drops that thing in your stomach? That's what I was feeling on a plane. So of course, as soon as I landed, uh That scarred me, and I have not been able to fly since uh, without medication, without being uh, severely freaked out, severely terrified. It's actually better now, but for a long stretch of the past seven years, I I would have rather have driven for two days than to take one little three-hour flight because of that experience. But Maybe about four years ago, my wife and I are flying somewhere. This is a situation where we had to fly, and we're flying next to each other, and the plane is flying smoothly. And my eyes are closed, I'm holding her hand, and I am grimacing. And we're just chilling. And then at one point, we get a little turbulence. We hit the little air pocket, and it starts to bounce a little. So of course... I nearly wet myself. And I am I'm wincing, I'm grabbing her hand, I am praying for dear life. And Catherine, in that moment, brilliant move on her part, she says, Matt, open your eyes. Look at the flight attendant. And I open like one eye, and I look at the flight attendant, and the plane is a little bouncy, but she's just kind of calmly passing out the drinks and passing (laughs) out the snacks. And she said, she does this more than you do. Take your cues from her, not from whatever scenario is in your head right now. Look at her. Don't take the cues from wherever your brain is going. She does this a lot more than you, and she is perfectly calm. And I think Jesus is doing something very similar here. When your life feels out of control... He is saying, look at God. God's not panicking. God's actually quite relaxed. God is in control of the situation. When your life feels like it's out of control, when it feels like the walls are caving in, Jesus is saying, zoom out and remember who God is. He has got this. And he is for you. But, if you're going to acknowledge that, if you're going to swallow that pill, there's a much harder pill that comes with that. Which means that you have to buy into the reality that even in the hard, hard situations of your life that God's in control of that too. That even when stuff really hits the fan in your life, that is not God abandoning you. That's not God punishing you. That's that's actually God orchestrating those things as a gift to you. Now, I know that sounds insane. That sounds insane. But let me illustrate it this way. as many of you know, my, uh, our son was born this past December. And we found out 24 hours after he was born that he had to have open heart surgery. And so he was airlifted to Charlotte the next day. Uh, they put him on a heart and lung machine. They stopped his heart. Uh, and they, they operated on his heart, which at that point was the size of a walnut. And so during that horrific... Uh, about a week and a half we were down there in Charlotte dealing with that I, I kept kind of meditating on this quote that I had heard um, by John Newton John Newton uh, as many of you know is a seventeen you know he was a pastor in the 1700s he wrote the hymn Amazing grace and I had heard this quote by him that I think the Lord just, just glued into my brain during that season and, and here 's the quote Everything everything is needful that he sends. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. Everything is needful that God sends into your life. And anything that God would withhold or take from you is not needed for you. Now that is a hard pill to swallow when the thing that you're thinking about God possibly taking away from you is your child. And yet, the more that I thought about that, I think what it did is it it took my eyes off of the situation, off of the circumstances, and it zoomed me out to who God is, to the person of who he is, the purposes that he deals with, the the purpose for my life, to really trust if if God takes away this thing from me that would be horrifically painful, that in some way it is for my good. And I don't understand all the ins and outs of that, but, but the way that I was processing it, that in that season enabled me at some level to deal with my anxiety and to deal with my fear. Not perfectly, not completely, this is not a magic formula, but at least when God becomes to go into the foreground of your life, everything else moves into the background. But of course, here's the million dollar question. How How can we know to really trust him? How can we trust that when our circumstances look terrible, that he's actually working good in them? How can we trust that he's really for us? That at the end of the day, our interests are at you know at the forefront of his heart and his mind. How can we really know? Here's how you can know. Paul tells you in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says this. God demonstrated his own love for us in this. He demonstrated his love, his commitment, his for us-ness in this. That while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. That's the key, that's the ticket. Paul says the way that you can bank on the reality and the bedrock certainty that God is for you is this. While you are an anxious, faithless, stressed out control freak, Jesus was willing to give himself for you and for me. Not when you were at your best was he willing to die for you, but it's when you were at your worst was he willing to give you his best. And if that's the case, if when you were at your worst God was willing to give his own son away, you can know without a shadow, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that he is for you. In fact, Paul connects the dots for us three chapters later in Romans 8:32. Here's what he says. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? In other words, if God was willing to give away his own son for us, you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt he would give you the entire world, which he promises to do. He was literally, he literally went to hell and back for his people. And that's how you can know. The story of the gospel is a story of grace. He came seeking after you, running after you, pursuing you. And so what does Jesus say? Should our response be, verse 33, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Which is, of course, a way of saying, when you seek the kingdom, you seek the king. And when he says seek, it, the emphasis is on this continuous, ongoing seeking. So why do we continuously, purposefully, ongoingly seek him? Because our hearts are prone to wander. And as soon as you walk out of this door, you're going to forget that he's for you. You're going to forget that he is your designer and your provider and your father. You are and I am as well. So we constantly keep reminding ourselves that the story is true. That Jesus came to seek and save the lost. I'm the lost. He came to seek and save me. He gave it all up for me. Look at the birds. Look at the lilies. Look how much he cares for them. And he loves me more than them. He loves me beyond anything I could ever imagine. So the way that you begin to deal with your anxiety, which you'll never be able to fully, perfectly on this side of heaven, but the way that you begin to deal with it is you preach the gospel to you. You evangelize yourself. You remind yourself that the gospel is true, that he's for you, he's willing to give up his son for you. You bring the cross to the forefront of your heart and of your mind, and then you can know that you can trust him. That even when things look out of control, even when things look terrible, you can trust Him. He's for you. And you can rest. You can actually bid your anxious fears goodbye and rest. So, the invitation for you tonight, if you struggle with anxiety, and all of you do, is to focus your eyes on Jesus, to seek Him. And to know as you seek him, it's only because he has first sought you. Let me pray. Father, would you be so kind as to give us the grace to zoom out of our tiny little claustrophobic bubble that we live in. And to get a bigger picture of who you are. To get a bigger and more robust understanding of your love for us. Your commitment to us how much you are for us, that you would go to the mat for us, you would go to hell and back for us. And I pray that that would in some ways enable us to relinquish control, to trust you with, with deeper senses of our being, to, to, to really um, fan the, the flame of faith in us. Uh, would you do that and, and, and enable us to be um, holistic, people that are at rest in our soul because we trust our Heavenly Father to take care of us. Would you do that in my heart? Because you know I'm just as much of an anxious, stressed-out control freak as these folks in front of me are. So So you know I need a work in my heart just as much as them. So will you do it? We beg of you, and we bank on your mercy. We pray all this in your name.